0: Welcome to the 100th episode of the Rocks Back Pages podcast. In a change from our normal schedule, we're going to look back over, what, two years of this thing without a guest? Or perhaps we are our own guests. Hello, Mark. (laughs) Hello, (laughs) Barney. Hello, Jasper. Hello, (laughs) (laughs) Barney. We're going to hear clips today from a few of those episodes And if there's any time left after all the self-congratulation, we'll wish Keith (laughs) Altham a very happy birthday. We'll listen to Donald Fagan talking in 1991. And we may even touch on The Black Keys, R.L. Burnside and Junior Kimbra. But Jasper, how did all this nonsense start in the first place?
1: Well, that's a very good question, Barney. I think basically a couple of years ago, somehow had the idea that we should do a podcast. This would be about October 2018-ish. And I put together a little proposal for us to discuss at one of our meetings, which sort of very optimistically, I dug it out, optimistically states, Barney and Mark would need to find 15 minutes a week to chat about what's going on in the archive, which could probably be done with very little prep. (laughs) Ha! Hollow laughter. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) The original idea was for it to be 10 to 20 minutes in length, brackets, flexible. I think we've <laughs> taken that parenthetical remark to heart. we see on
0: the flexible, Mark and I. Yeah, we did. we did. Notice it says flexible.
1: But what I did like is that from the beginning, we kind of wanted it to be personal, wanted it to be a conversation addressed to an individual listener in friendly terms with an eavesdropping style. By the way, that's not you, whoever's listening to this. It's someone else. <laughs> <laughs> Some platonic kind <laughs> of idea, yeah yeah, the the platonic lister that's good, I like that, but so yeah, that's kind of how it got started, and then, if you listen back to the first episode, I think it's really funny how slowly, particularly Barney you're you know really enunciating every word most beautifully, but it's very fun to listen to that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I think, think we I must had a... have been on Valium or something, because it does sound very <laughs> slow. Uh, I think you're
2: you sort of very concerned that the thing be clear and well enunciated. <laughs> <laughs> and I think both Jasper and I said afterwards, listen, Barney, the, just have a conversation you know it's easier <laughs> have, and the next episode you
0: electrocuted me didn't
2: you <laughs> oh yeah, oh, yeah. It. I know.
1: it's been really nice though I think it's great to see how far we've kind of come as far as doing that and then we started getting guests on and, and that's been super and it's just you know a hundred episodes later here we are having a good laugh every week which is really nice every two weeks Let's listen to that first intro. Mama
3: Mia, mama Mia, mama
4: Mia, let me go. Be as a devil, for me, for me, for me.
0: Welcome to the very first Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name is Barney Hoskins. I'm the editorial director of Rocks Back Pages. I'm sitting here with. Mark Pringle, who is the chief archivist of the Rocksback Pages online library. Hello, Barney. <laughs> Beautifully delivered, Mark. <laughs> we are here to tell you what is new on Rocksback Pages this week. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, I'd have been asleep by now. <laughs> that
2: was marvellous listening to that again. Honestly, <laughs> it
0: just very made fun. us all roar of laughter. Strength. Very good. So, for what, like two or three weeks, it was just Mark and myself, wasn't it? Yeah, on Nembutal. <laughs> and then we started thinking about guests. I think we got in John Mendelssohn quite early on. He was very funny, Absolutely. of course, an outrageous yeah, character. Great. And then was our first female guest. The delightful Doctor Jennifer Otter Bickerdike.
2: It may well have been. She was
1: sensational. She was sensational. She was so funny. Shall we hear
0: her?
4: Like, shall over? hear of her?
1: Fa- she was so. She was fawning over you, Barney. That's really why I invited her on, of course. Yeah, huh. and that's why you want to listen to this clip.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and why we've got her coming back in in about two weeks or something. <laughs> Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name is Barney Hoskins. I'm here with my colleague Mark Pringle. Hello, Barney. We are here with our very special guest today, oh. the great. Jennifer Osipikaduk.
5: Oh, thank you! <laughs> so, just hear you say my name. I'm like, Barney knows who I am. i <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> yeah. excited.
0: Yeah, it'd be worrying if I didn't know. Who, just thinking, who is this woman? She so, just here, came I'm in. Yeah, I
5: the street.
0: Just <laughs> in. Yeah. Um, I do know who you are. I love who you are. Aww. We're really honoured to have you here. We're really Absolutely. delighted. You. We adore you, and we're going to have some fun.
2: That was great. You you
0: had sped up by that time, Barney, as well.
2: (laughs) We're talking like a normal human being, which is really interesting. Well, with
0: Jennifer in in the studio, as it were, you got to speed up. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely, she's an outrageous character.
1: I like your euphemistic "the studio," which has been dubbed since. I think David Hepworth was the first to dub it "the cupboard."
0: Yes, he really put us in our place, did not he? He said he he obviously expects to come in and find some rather kind of grand. (laughs) recording (laughs) sweet or something
1: (laughs) but in case anybody had a notion of that still that we do that we don't absolutely not (laughs) i wanted to ask you guys how you sort of feel looking back what you thought the podcast might look like and how you feel about where it's gone since then
0: well, you know, it's a good question because obviously we're in an era now where everyone and their great uncle does a podcast. It's quite difficult to sort of stand out. I didn't listen to many podcasts before we started doing one. I just didn't have the time, really. I mean, I do listen to a few more these days. So I don't really have a very preconceived idea of what our podcast could or should Look like.
2: I completely agree. I think what's happened is it's just simply evolved. Mm. You know, in terms of how we've increased the number of guests. Basically, we have guests just about every week now, which we didn't yeah. have in the early days. The structure of the podcast has evolved, and it's now reasonably fixed in the sort of how we do it. Technically, has evolved. We've improved the sound of certain things. And of course, with COVID, the big change was going to the the Zoom podcast.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, the thing, obviously, I'd like to say, Jasper, is that you've done such a brilliant job. I had no idea that it could be so compelling, really. I suppose initially I thought it would just be Mark and I chatting. You eventually became part of the, you know, the actual talent (laughs) as it were but I mean the way you drop music clips in the way you produced and edited it it quickly became something much more enjoyable than than I thought it could possibly be and I feel the same way about it I enjoy listening to it that may be you know very sort of self-congratulation but I just enjoy (laughs) it we have we have fun I think the way you put it together I mean like last week (laughs) when David Quantic was being incredibly funny and talking about Morrissey. You created this mashup of Alan Bennett declaiming very <laughs> morosely over a, a high life song based <laughs> on what Quantic had said. And it was just ingenious. And you've done that many times. Yeah. And it's always very chortlesome. So I doff my cap to you.
1: Well thank you. I'm glad. I I like to have fun with that kind of thing. It's a, it's a real highlight <laughs> yeah. for me of getting to do that. But I think also I mean what you say about evolving you guys you know initially were kind of looking at articles as experts almost kind of with this slightly rockademic kind of point of view of like, well, this is the first and this, And we still do that, obviously, you know, Mark will dig out the the earliest piece on such and such. And and I think that's still a really interesting part of the podcast. But crucially, we've started sort of asking people to tell stories of their experiences. And I think that's one of the things that makes it compelling for me is like getting to hear how someone got started as a music journalist and all the different paths that people take or the first time they met someone or that kind of thing is just really funny and and
0: fascinating at the same time. Yeah and I mean at a certain point we started thinking well look we could actually get some quite famous people um, on the show and the obvious starting point was Neil Tennant who's been on Rock's Back Pages as a a writer, as a music journalist for I I mean gosh coming up for nearly 20 years. I've always been really delighted about that because he was a great writer and he's a great pop star yeah. and he very kindly uh, said he would come in and do it. He took the tube from Sloan Square <laughs> <laughs> uh, and came in and wasn't rude about the cupboard. He was wryly funny about the cupboard because I think he'd heard David Hepworth describe it last. <laughs> but he was very, very sweet about it.
2: I mean, he's, he's a very good example of precisely what Jess has just been saying. and starting to hear the stories about how people got into writing. And we'll play this clip now which is his very first interview which is just just brilliant
4: that was the first time i wrote anything actually i decided that as various pop stars were marvel comics fans i would interview them (laughs) and so i interviewed mark Berlin. Which is the first interview I ever did. Wow. In Mark was aw- the first interview. Yeah, in the autumn of 1975. I went to Keith Oltham's office in. not far from here. Actually. Yeah. It was raining as well. And, uh, <laughs> and I had this ancient tape recorder that one of the graphic designers at Marvel Comics had lent me. I never used one before. And so Mark comes in. He was in a slightly heavy phase. Mm. Had enormous fingers, like sausages. And but and he had a mutton voice, you know. Like, yeah, the cat's great now. And um, and <laughs> I, I put the I put the tape recorder down on the table, and then we went and sat on the sofa across the room. For some reason, <laughs> I was. I was too cool to take it. I thought it <laughs> yeah. was too committed to yeah. take the tape recorder with me. So we sat down and Mark Bowen looked, and just, without stopping talking, walked across the room, got the cassette player <laughs> and put it between them. Oh, that was sweet. It was really sweet of them. That's absolutely
2: marvellous. I mean... He was such a good, good guest, and I, we all fell in love with him, really, didn't we? Oh, he was, he was just, just, just lovely.
0: Wasn't he delightful? He didn't come in with any airs and graces. No. I mean, you know, he, he. I mean, I think a lot of sort of poachers turn gamekeepers in pop become rather snooty about having been music journalist and rather dismiss it. He still loves the fact that he wrote for Smash Hits. It's almost as important to him as the Pet Shop Boys, you know. (laughs) I found that very endearing. (laughs) Yeah. He was delightful. And then, you know, we've had some wonderful American guests. I mean, I think one of the things I love about Rocks Back Pages, Mark, I think you probably would agree, and Jasper, is that, you know, we've got so many American contributors, so many great American music writers from the last, like, 50-plus years. And one of them happened to be visiting in London, the wonderful Amy Linden. And she came in and she was absolutely delightful. Just Mark, tell us just briefly about Amy.
2: Well, I mean, she's a great writer about, particularly about black music. She's just lovely. I mean, I've met her a couple of times before. We've taken her out for lunch when she's previously visited London. I just liked her enormously. And she came in, she told me off for my pronunciation of De la Sole. De la Sole. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't a French dish. It wasn't a French no. dish. Yeah. <laughs> Again, she was a huge fun.
1: We've been so lucky with so we've had so many great guests and we can't go through them all, but we've just had such a great experience with so many different people with so many different perspectives. And this is a clip of Amy talking about what a dick Kanye West is, which I just think is hilarious.
2: <laughs>
5: <laughs> so I meet Kanye. I mean, through his publicist, he was just, oh my God, he was a fucking nightmare. And the publicist goes, oh, this is Amy, should be doing the interview? Blah, blah, blah. And I said, yeah, you know, I said, I really liked the record, which was true. I really did like the record. And he goes, oh, did you buy it? <coughs> okay. And I looked at him and I went, no. <laughs> I said, I didn't buy the record. I said, they send us the records. I didn't buy the record. And he was like, oh, this You know, oh, I'm not doing this interview. (laughs) I'm like, I said, well, if it makes you feel any better. I did buy the record. No. (laughs) I said, if it makes you feel any better, my son was going to buy a bootleg, and I told him not to buy the bootleg, so in essence, I saved you money because my kid was going to buy a fucking bootleg, and you wouldn't have gotten that $5 anyway, and I wouldn't have paid for the record, so we're even. And I said it, like, in a funny way, and he's ready to walk off So the publicist is like, oh, you know, Amy's uh, got a sense of humor. She's got sort of a dark sense of humor. She's really great. You love her, blah, blah, blah. blah. All right.
0: That's what we tell people about you.
5: Yeah, well, (laughs) I'm adorable. But I mean, it's just like, and I'm just sitting there going, dude, okay, really? Did you buy the record? Have you? No. You know, that's what that for promotional use on the fucking record means, (laughs) you moron. So I'm like, all right, whatever. First off, he wouldn't look directly at me.
0: Mm
5: -hmm. I mean, he would sort of kind of this. And he just would start going off on these tangents. Like, he was furious because Rolling Stone had given the record four and a half stars. And he had gotten the Boys Choir of Harlem to come all the way out to the Hamptons to record. And why didn't they acknowledge the effort he had put into getting them to come to the Hamptons? And I'm thinking... You don't get fucking points for like driving a choir out to the Hamptons. First off, who brings the boys' choir of Harlem out to the Hamptons? Why don't you just bring your ass into Harlem? Number one. <laughs> number two, whatever. Like you don't get you don't get scored on the effort points. Anyway, long story short. So he was just a dick.
0: Yeah. So it basically was like Donald Trump even then.
5: He was just a dick. I mean and the thing is I left there. And then you start reading all these other reviews, like some thinking, um, oh, maybe he was a dick. because I'm a girl, maybe he's a dick. Because sometimes rappers go, mm-hmm. ugh, the white writer. They sent the white writer. Really, like we're not worthy of like getting the black writer. And then I'm like, every review, he's a dick. He's a dick. Yeah. He's a dick. Yeah. He's a dick. go.
0: One sort of turning point that I recall is receiving an email from a woman who's doing press for Bernard Fowler, who sings with the Rolling Stones. And um, would you like to have Bernard on your podcast? And I remember sort of looking at both of you and thinking, well, he's not a music writer, uh, you know, but then if someone called up and said, Bob Dylan wants to be on your podcast, you're, you're not going to go... <laughs> Sorry. Uh, nah. Nah, did he ever write for Smash Hits?
2: I don't know that's possible. <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so we kind of thought, yes, let's just do it. And Bernard came in. I think he was in town like rehearsing with The Stones. And he he, he wandered into the cupboard. And had a look on his face which sort of said, Who the hell booked me in for this? (laughs) uh, But he warmed up pretty quickly. We got him on side, didn't we?
2: Well, I mean, the thing is, is we started, we instantly started talking about, not about the Stones, but about the Peach Boys and about Larry LeVarn and Paradise Paradise Garage. Paradise Garage, exactly. And when he realized we knew our shit, he suddenly, he really opened up. He 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 did. It was terrific. Yes. Yeah, no, definitely. There was a thawing
1: of the ice as as a certain point. I think perhaps, Mark, when you started talking about The Last Poets as well as being like his album that he was releasing, which is why he was doing press. And, Compared it to the last person. He was like, "Ah, this guy knows what he's talking about," and that was yes. great to witness actually, because there was this slight tension in the air, and it was kind of like, oh, "Is this going to go well? Did we did we make a mistake by having by having a musician on? You know, but no, I don't think we did." He gave me a hug when he, he,
2: when I went out for a cigarette in the street at the end. He gave
0: me a hug to say goodbye. Oh. <laughs> it was very well, I knew nice. things were going well when he put his hand on my knee. Ah, oh, in, well, in, in the recording. <laughs> I mean, I'm not casting any aspersions on Bernard Fowler. I mean, you wouldn't. He's, no, he's tall, a tall, big guy. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it was just very sweet. And it was kind of like he was he was just responding he to was our enthusiasm. Sweet. Yeah. And yeah. it was really nice. Yeah, and definitely. then he started to become very, very funny. And obviously, we, we started asking him about the kind of internal politics of the Rolling Stones. And this is sort of roughly what he said, isn't it? <laughs>
5: yeah.
0: Ronnie and Keith come in. I show them parts. Given parts we sing, we go back
6: in to listen to playback. Mm-hmm. Standing and listening to playback, I feel this heat, <laughs> and I look, and Keith is looking at me like this. <laughs> That's scary. <laughs> with, those, with those eyes, you know those eyes. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. And I looked at him I'm like, oh shit, and I'm trying to ignore him. I look again, he's still looking at me. <laughs> And I'm thinking, oh hell, here we go. <laughs> I gotta say something to him. So I looked at him. I said, "Yo, man, something wrong?" <laughs> no, nothing's wrong. I said, "You sure you keep you keep why you staring at me, man? Why you keep staring at me?" <laughs> I didn't wanna like you. I said, "You didn't wanna like me." I didn't wanna like you. <laughs> and I'm like, why, man?" <laughs> I said, why you don't want to like me? I said, I'm cool. <laughs> <laughs> he said, because I thought you were wanna mix boys. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I said, yo man, I'm I said, I'm cool. He said, I know you're cool. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're cool. <laughs> I, know you're cool. <laughs> I know you're cool.
2: I spoke to Steve Jordan and he told right. me about it. Ah, uh, right, Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's
6: yeah. cool. That's First cool. words he ever spoke to me. Yeah, uh, I did <laughs>
2: Which is great because you know there he is talking mixed man, mixed guy. <laughs> Tell us about the, the man who is Keith's guy, who is one of our guests.
0: Yeah, so one of the episodes I enjoyed most, you know, partly because this man's become a friend and I just adore him, and I think he's a fabulous writer. Is the great James Fox, yeah, who wrote White Mischief, and then was hired by Keith Richards to write his fabulous biography, Life. And so James came on to talk about various things, but obviously about Keith. (laughs) Because of the amount of time he has spent with Keith, he has perfected. Well, actually, it's quite hard to do. It's harder than you think. Is an imitation of Keith Richards, but he's got it down pat, which for quite a posh guy, as James is, isn't easy. Can we hear that, Jasper?
1: (laughs) Well, he got a little touchy about that, actually. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it got back to him that I was going around sort of telling these marvellous anecdotes in, in Keith speak
6: and so he said to me um, oh, I'll tell you something James <laughs> uh, One day you're going to get your personality back
2: LAUGHTER <laughs>
0: So after Bernard Fowler, Neil Tennant, etc., we did start to invite a few more celebs on or, you know, non Rustback pages. <laughs> Personalities, and some of them were very, very funny. I mean, one of my very, very favorite comedians is Stuart Lee, and he agreed to come on he 's a music obsessive, so yeah. I, I, oh yeah I, it, it, it wasn 't a kind of you know it wasn 't just getting someone famous on for the sake of it, but he was really, really funny and talked about the fall and Ted Chippington and all kinds of and the nightingales, of course he 'd made a, a documentary film about mm. can we hear a clip of Stuart Lee? <laughs>
1: When I used to script edit Harry Hill's Channel Four show in the nineties, it was directed by a bloke called Robin Nash. He had been the head of light entertainment at the BBC in the seventies and eighties, yeah, and yeah. I that, produced and directed Top of the Pops. And Robin had very fixed ideas about comedy, and he would never let us do a sketch that was longer than three minutes, which I found difficult.
2: But, uh, but um, he, uh, <laughs> that would be a bit of a
7: challenge. <laughs> but
1: he said that um, people's, you know, no piece of light entertainment could be longer than three minutes, and I went right you were director and producer of Top of the Pops, weren't you, when Queen did Bohemian Rhapsody? And he said, yeah. And I went, well, that's longer than three minutes. So what did you do with that? You must have played that through. And he went, no, I didn't. I said, what? And he said, when it was number one the first week, I told them they could sing the, play the first half of it, and if it was number one again the second week, they would show the second half. And that's what he did. <laughs> he broke it down into
0: two bits. Very good. <laughs> brilliant. <laughs> that's fantastic. Well, so he was very funny.
1: And I think one thing that I, while you were talking about the kind of various different people we've had, one thing that's kind of worth noting is that even though we've branched out a little bit, we do kind of always bring it back to... Music journalism in some way, shape or form and, and certainly music always. And I think that the nice thing about that music journalism slant is that it gives us a slightly different angle to talk about things and draw people on their own experiences of the phenomenon that is journalism and that is interacting with with that kind of content and it kind of I think gets some different stories than than one might get otherwise and gets a personal angle again that one might not get otherwise because it you know takes people back to their childhood and it takes people back to their adolescence and their you know their first job and that kind of thing and that I find is just a really nice aspect of it and you get
0: really just wildly different nice stories I tell you who was very funny was Caroline Boucher. And she did have a kind of personal involvement in this particular story. And she's a great storyteller. She she was one of that wave, wasn't she, Mark, of great female pop writers in the 60s.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, another guest we had was Dawn James, who wrote for Rave, who was a fabulous guest.
0: Yeah, Caroline Boucher,
2: absolutely. I mean, it's it's a big passion of mine, pop writing from the sixties. And Certainly certain magazines, um, Disc and Music Echo particularly, really heavily featured women like the great Penny Valentine, who yeah. was a great dear friend of Caroline Boucher's. And Caroline yes. Boucher mm. was a marvellous guest. Yes. And still clearly obsessed with music. I mean, when she, when it's time to haul out a, an album cover for The Photograph, which is, is the p- part of the promotion of the podcast, she just like disappeared from view and came back with the, the mother's of invention. We were only in it for the money, which was just fantastic. you know. It was
0: lovely, wasn't it? It was like her original copy yeah, of that. Absolutely. Yeah. She Super. told this very, very funny story about Richard Branson trying to sign, well, Captain Beefheart and Frank Zappa. Mm-hmm.
5: So maybe we could hear that. We found Beefheart quite easily and signed him up. And at that point, he was not talking to Zappa. He hated Zappa. It was enemies. It was guns at dawn. So as soon as Richard came out, because Richard was so delighted, he jumped on a plane and came out, and the, we said to him, we met him at the airport, and we said, we've got Beefheart, on no account are you to mention Frank Zappa to Beefheart, because he will kill you. So Richard comes in, meets <laughs> Beefheart, how lovely, I'm so glad I got you on my label, now I'm going to get Frank Zappa. Whoa! Oh,
0: <laughs> classic Branson. Yeah. Nitwit.
3: i a little <laughs> My me, me,
0: with my That's lovely. <laughs> I mean, because what that reminds me of is the fact that writers from that era were often, they were a lot closer to the musicians. You know, they were sort of like properly embedded. Well,
2: in, I mean, the they had access, industry. which yeah. j- journalists these days could only dream of, you know. Yes. I mean, mm. right yeah. until up until, I'd guess, the mid-70s, when the PR people started coming in mm. and sort of, you know, ruling how the journalists interacted, they had total access. And, of course, talking about PR people, we had the marvellous Barbara Sharon, journalist-turned-PR as a guest. Unfortunately, we spent most of that episode eulogising Chelsea Football Club, of whom we're all (laughs) fans. And we're recording this the morning after Chelsea thrust into the final of the European Champions League by beating Real Madrid. So I'm sure that Barbara herself is on a high today.
0: I hope so, yeah. Yeah. Sending out uh, our best wishes to you, Barbara, Definitely. if you're listening. And yeah. we'll speak again on the 29th of May, no doubt. Oh, God. Um,
1: <laughs> we have sort of every now and again, when we've been unable to resist shoehorning a bit of football talk, I remember at one point, I mean, I think when, what's the guy that sang You'll Never Walk Alone? Jerry Marsden. Jerry Marsden, we talked about him and sort of shoehorned in talking about Jurgen Klopp. And we are always kind of trying to get, get our little football chats in which is quite sort of possibly alienating for some poor listeners but sorry it's just i part see what you're doing
0: there jasper you're going liverpool in so that we can't be accused of being too chelsea centric aren't you but we are chelsea <laughs> so. are. We are.
2: <laughs> blue is the color football is the game <laughs> <laughs>
0: Right. Well, moving on from that. Moving on from that. I mean, so we've talked about some quite famous people who started out as music journalists. Some of the more improbable ones was, of course, Lloyd Grossman, the king of like pasta sauces, who I've known <laughs> a little bit over the years. And we had, we got, you know, we were into lockdown at this point, so Lloyd was on Zoom with us, and he was extremely funny about his rock journal years in America and then coming to England. And I asked him about a book that he had written, a very little known book. So perhaps we can hear that clip. I have to ask you about, you wrote this book in 1975, published in 1975, called A Social History of Rock. I mean, I confess to my chagrin, I haven't read it, so I don't really know what it is. Is it A Social History of Rock? (laughs) And just tell us briefly about that. Y- yes,
1: well, you've been very acute in guessing that it is actually a social history of rock. <laughs> so you score points for having looked up the title. Um, <laughs> I mean, it could be. Actually, that would be a great title for some obscure, unreadable novel, wouldn't it? Yes, it
0: would. <laughs> right. I'm sure people still buy copies of it, assuming it's a post postmodern novel. Yeah, yeah, hey. <laughs> I think that's,
1: we could repackage it. It's, um, Rather disturbingly, I found it on the reading list of a couple of university sociology departments. No university you've
2: ever heard of, by the
1: way. But, you know, <laughs> I wish I could say that I've read it in the last 30 or 40 years, but I haven't, so I can't really.
0: It's great, though. I mean, it's a very important... <laughs> <laughs> that was just uh, tremendous fun. That you... was very, very funny. and I mean, actually, that causes me to, you know, we have to... Make Mention a key ingredient in the Rocksback Pages podcast, which is the Mark Pringle laugh.
1: I was just thinking the same thing. Barney, you and I are on the same wavelength, this is the Mark Pringle laugh that has garnered us more than one review saying I can't listen to this podcast because there's this bloke doing this appalling <laughs> fake, <laughs> fake laughter, blah
0: blah blah. I tell you what, it's, it's not, not fake, fake. It isn't <laughs> fake. No, it's definitely not fake. <laughs> And I love it, and Jasper loves it, love and, it. I mean, yeah, it may be do. Marmite for some people, but I think it's a very important element of our, of our podcast. <laughs> yeah, long it's a key it, Long may it rain. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so we have to highlight that. And maybe we've got time for one more clip just what do you think and i was sort of thinking one of the best we tried to get him on rocks back pages for about 10 years and he's always just too busy as one of the guardians leading political writers john harris this was also on zoom in lockdown but he took time off from his busy schedule to talk to us about well among other things Britpop. pop
1: so the point was groups started to fall off and then people started making bad records so that third oasis album I can remember, I mean, this is how gone I was, right? Noel Gallagher, I remember going to Music Bank Rehearsal Studios in Bermondsey to interview them for a cover, right? And Noel Gallagher told me the record wasn't very good, right? (laughs) Which I hadn't heard it. I wasn't allowed to hear it. But he told me it's not very good. And he went through it and he said, this song isn't much cop really, and this one's like a crap version of Wonderwall. And I was going, no, no, it's going to be brilliant. It's great. You're great. The record's great. Everything's great. No, no, it's not very good. Shut up.
7: <laughs> you know <laughs> <laughs> oh, he just
1: wow. he just made it he was if anyone was going right. to know it was crap right so everybody was reluctant to say look this is finished
2: <laughs> oh, that's fantastic that's fantastic
0: I love it shut up it's great
2: <laughs> <laughs> he, was, he was again fantastic guest I mean it's also worth mentioning we've had lots of women writer guests who have been I think personally some of my favourite guests Michelle Kirsch Kathy Unsworth you know absolutely wonderful guests, you know. And your friend DJ
0: Cosmo, who's not a music journalist per se, but she is absolutely lovely. We adored her. And we
1: had Jill Fermanofsky as well. I mean, there are only too many great guests to mention. I was thinking back, one of the episodes I loved doing was also with Dorian Linsky on the eve of Brexit, which has come to pass, you know, in the time since we started doing the podcast and that was a really fun thing where we just got to pay tribute to a bunch of European music that we love and all that. Yeah, we talked
0: about Cannes, didn't we? We had a great Cannes audio interview, (laughs) special Surely, especially to mark our exit from uh, Europe.
2: I mean, also, you know, because one has to go on holiday, one misses, and I really regret missing both the Richard Williams one and the Ian Penman one. Ian Penman yeah. and Adam Richard were both fabulous guests. I'd have loved to been in the room for those two. You know, They were super. And in, in some
1: instances we've been able to have it brings me on to the, the idea of the kind of more academic stuff. We've gotten to do some really deep dives on topics, which I've found fascinating, you know, both as a participant and then as a as a listener as well. If you know if it's you guys going deep into something that you're really passionate about, for me that's that is the kind of thing that I love hearing. And I, I'm so happy that we managed to do that on numerous occasions.
2: Though so we have been accused of talking about the band rather too much. <laughs> yeah.
0: Mainly by Jasper. <laughs> Mainly by Jasper. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, but not only by Jasper.
2: But, um, for example, we had John Simon on, who's a terrific guest, who produced the band's second album mm. and uh, and a lot of other
0: stuff. And Jez Butterworth, who, who yes. turned out to be an absolutely massive band fan, and yeah. who has, in fact, just finished a screenplay about the band. I mean, this is the, the playwright who wrote Jerusalem and I hadn't realized, I mean, he was telling us, wasn't he? That he was listening to some chap's record collection when he was like eight years old. And, I yes. Mean, he, he first listened to music from big pink when he was like eight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which put us in the shade. Really. Yes. Very in terms much of so. band yeah. fanaticism. Look, I mean, one of the best guests we've had is, is one of the earliest Pop writers of distinction, Keith Altham, who came in quite early, and yep. I want to mention him really because he turns eighty this week, and we adore Keith. Happy, happy, birthday. Birthday, happy birthday, Keith Altham. Happy, happy birthday! We adore you, and without you, I'm not sure Rock's Back Pages would have become what it was. I've actually written a little appreciation as part of the free feature on Rock's Back Pages on the home page this week, oh, and it's really lovely. just saying that we. I mean, when um. Mark and Martin Collier and myself founded Rocksback Pages and launched it. One of the first people we went to see was Keith. My recollections we drove down to West Ewell where Keith had an office that's rock. right a sort of
2: almost derelict office because he's basically in the process of moving out i think, to remember. he was and he
0: had all his stuff up there i mean all all his old copies of enemy and rave yep. and stuff like that and he was a little wary i think and why not why, why shouldn't he have been but you know he did come on board and he lent us tons of stuff we've got over 400 of his pieces on rock's back yeah. page um,
2: he also he was the guy who introduced us to so many of his colleagues from the music press from that period which and i It allowed us to get a whole bunch of really, really great writers for New Music Express, Record Mirror, Melody Maker. Maker.
0: We had Chris Welch on the other day, and again, without Keith. I'm not sure we'd have got to half Mm -hmm. those people. Yeah. So by way of wishing him happy birthday, we're featuring just three of his 450 pieces for free (laughs) on the homepage. Uh, One of them is this wonderful account of flying to America with Jimi Hendrix to attend the Monterey Pop Festival in 1967. I mean, this is the first great and possibly the greatest ever pop festival because it was a really happy experience for everybody. And it's a lovely, it's a lovely account of the build up to that, the time he spends briefly in New York with Jimmy. And there's a great moment where he, he, he talks about. Derek Taylor, who we also have on Rock's Back pages, the late Derek Taylor, who was also a music journalist as well as the Beatles, you know, press guy and all of that. And he was running the press office at Monterey. And he was driven so crazy by everybody's demands. Keith says he had resorted to a sign in his office window reading, "I cannot relate to your problem," and then left the office. <laughs> <laughs> it's absolutely fabulous, brilliant.
2: I mean, it's, it's worth pointing out that we also have the audio, Keith's audio interview with Jimi Hendrix, which was the last interview Jimi gave for his death. And Keith was very involved in he It was Keith who suggested. Setting a guitar light backstage at the Finsbury Park Astoria, which on the Walker Brothers, Inglebert, Humperdinck, Jimi Hendrix, yes, yes,
0: exactly. (laughs) I know, know. yeah, but you you raise a point that I'd like to make, which is that our audio archive has been a very important part of the podcast
5: yeah, we feature
0: definitely. clips every week and we you know we add a new audio interview every week and it's nice to I and mean, we will be hearing the latest one we've added a little bit later in this episode but I've I really enjoyed it just hearing a couple of clips and just talking about the artist in question. It's been fun just hearing this voice from the past. Yeah, definitely. Weaving into the present, which is really great. And we've got a few of Keith's. We've got Keith speaking to Mark Mick Bolan. Jagger, Mark Bolan, And in fact, we've added a, a Mark Boland piece from April 71. I mean, I, it had particular resonance for me. This is actually Record Mirror. It was mainly associated with the New Musical Express, yep. but he, he kind of wrote for a few other people. So this piece it's kind of like literally when I was getting into pop music was cause, cause hot love by T-Rex was my, so I don't, for whatever reason, I just heard it on the transistor radio and it was like, I became a, a T-Rex obsessive and it's, he's talking to Mark about this curious metamorphosis really where he'd been this, you know, like little hippie kind of changeling. And now he's, you know Graham Rock hasn't even been uh, hasn't even been sort of coined as a term at this point but he's sort of talking about you know this new teenage audience that he's got and it's and and talking his usual kind of twaddle blessing <laughs> but it, it, it it's really good he says i've been doing interviews with all the teeny Bot magazines and i haven't been asked a stupid question yet people underestimate the intelligence of these young kids well he's right of course that's a great little piece and then the last of the pieces by Keith is Actually, going back so in time is, is he's talking to the Beatles at the towards the end of 1967 and hearing about Sergeant Pepper and so forth. There's a funny quote. McCartney says, what angers me is when some journalist says I've said something I haven't and describes me as talking in my quote unquote natural zany beat style. I don't talk in a zany beat style, says Macca. (laughs) So anyway, Keith, we love you. Thanks for coming on board. It made all the difference in the world to us. And have a great day. In fact, this will be going out after you've had your birthday. So I hope you had a wonderful day on Saturday.
1: And you can listen to that. That's episode 21. You can listen to Keith tell that story of convincing Jimmy to set his guitar on fire, which is you a really great great story he's lovely when he came
0: in as well super super nice guy yeah he's a a fabulous man in fact after this episode i'm going to post a birthday card through his letterbox because he is not exactly a neighbor but he lives only about a quarter of a mile away
1: And just to conclude our section on on our own, kind of looking back at the first 99 episodes, you know, if we haven't mentioned your name, it's not because we didn't love having you on. Thanks to everyone that's come on. It's been a real pleasure. It's just that we're too haphazard and scattered to actually (laughs) figure out who we have and haven't mentioned. (laughs) But yeah, no, thanks to everyone. It's been a really, really fun time for the first 99
0: absolutely Looking and we just don't have next. time to essentially acknowledge and play yeah go back all and listen
1: and, to our stuff you, you know there's there's some
0: gems out there as lloyd grossman would say they're all great and they really are i think they're they are all great, great. <laughs> um we have been really really lucky i don't think i have been disappointed in in anybody we're hoping to have many more wonderful guests in the yeah. you know
6: yeah, <laughs> in the coming months
0: and years frankly yeah. so so in addition to keith altham's three pieces there are also three free pieces broadly about or relating to the black keys Who have a new album out called delta cream this week it's an opportunity to feature pieces about the great rl burnside and junior kimbra and particularly this wonderful long piece about North Mississippi Hill Country Blues by former MC5 manager John Sinclair for a magazine called Honest Tune in 2005. He goes really deep into the the story of this particular kind of branch of American blues. And I found it really, really interesting. And he mentions Burnside, obviously. He also mentions Otha Turner Mm -hmm. and his fife and drum band. And he mentions Junior Kimber. These fantastic kind of very African-rooted blues performers who've influenced the Black Keys massively. The new Black Keys album is very much a kind of tribute to that sound. In fact, most of the songs on it are songs by Burnside and and Kimbra, along with a version of Crawling Kingsnake by, um, you know, what's his face? (laughs) John Lee Hooker. Yeah, Mark.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, the record label associated with them is Fat Possum, which is a Mississippi... Record label, their sort of project was to find and record people still playing the blues in the blues as birthplace. One could loosely mm. say. Uh, also, a reaction to like the Alligator Records and the other labels who were doing a very polished version of electric blues. It was really a conscious decision to kind of crudely record these people uh, to to keep it as live as possible um, and dynamic. Uh, and it's, it's really interesting stuff. It, 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 I, th- I think Fat Possum really was a very interesting label. I'm a big Kimber and R.L. Burnside fan. I think they're, they're fantastic.
0: They they're very, they went very raw, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I remember... It's electric um, country blues. Yes, but very, very raw. Yeah. A, 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 and you can hear it in the Black Keys sound. I mean, I am a Black Keys fan. They've done lots of different kinds of things since the their first record i saw them at the hundred club just and it's just two guys you know it's very much in that in that vein just very very sort of raw primal guitar and drums no bass nothing else very powerful
1: i really like the black keys i think they're really good and i actually have a vivid memory of the first time i ever heard their music which is kind of strange friend of mine on the school bus Suddenly, you know, it was like, we were listening to music. He's like, right, listen to this. And he had him a pair of earbuds. I can't remember the name of the track. But anyway, the guitar comes in, and there was immediately a clear picture of what the vocal would sound like, and then it sounded exactly like that. It was kind <laughs> of like it fitted together in the most perfect way. And that, to me, I think has always, you know, made me like the Black Keys, is that it does actually fulfil what it sets out to do.
0: Yeah, and I really like the name Fat Possum. I, I, I remember... Commissioning a, a short piece about Fat Possum Records for Mojo, I think maybe Robert Gordon yep. wrote it because we had heard this "A Ass Pocket of Whiskey" album. Yeah, I think that Burnside had released, <laughs> which was a collaboration with John Spencer. And I mean, I just love that sound. You know, there's numerous examples of it. It is very raw. It is different from kind of Delta blues or Chicago blues. It just does feel more. It's almost got... You can kind of hear a kinship with that, that sort of North African desert blues thing like Tinarawan do. It's very trance-like. Well, it is dance music. I mean, that's the thing we've got to remember. This music was yeah. for
2: dancing in small juke joints around, around the South. Of course. In, but modern-day juke yes. joints around the South with amplifiers.
0: and Yes. And John Sinclair makes this really good point, which I suppose is obvious, but the amplifiers were so small that in those little juke joints to kind of to be heard over just the, the general kind of noise of people dancing and talking and drinking you every, the guitarist would crank the amp up up. to maximum volume so yeah. you get this very distorted thing you know yeah. yeah and i mean you hear that obviously you hear that in howland wolf's records you you hear that distortion and that's been such a key part of john spencer's sound the north mississippi all-stars you know jim dickinson's boys And then, of course, you know, the Black Keys, who, you know, apart from anything else, just the way Dan Auerbach plays is is phenomenal. The last of the pieces in this little feature is actually a conversation between Billy Gibbons and Dan Auerbach. They're talking about guitars. They're talking briefly about Mississippi Fred McDowell, who comes into this story. And it's a wonderful conversation between two guitarists. And they talk about British blues at one point. And Dan asks Billy, did you like British blues? You know, the John Males and the Peter Greens. And Gibbons actually does, he, he really credits the British blues boom with, he calls it the great salvation. <laughs> because he kind of hints that without it, you know, uh, blues in America might have not not sort of died away but it just wouldn't have got the recognition that it has so those are really really good pieces T- ted Drushdowski, if i pronounced his his name is the is the sort of moderator of that conversation for guitar world in 2012 and ted also reviews a couple of albums by rl burnside and junior Kimbra. and ted really gets he really gets what yeah. that music is about And, Mark, what is the new audio interview on Rock's Back Pages?
2: Yeah, it's Adam Sweeting in 1991 on the phone to Donald Fagan in New York. And they've just released the New York Rock and Soul Review live album recorded at the Beacon Theatre. Uh, and so- He explains what the Rock and Soul Review, how, how it develops, what it's about. But he very swiftly gets on to Stevie Dan. So let's have a listen to a clip of him talking about Stevie Dan and its sort of influence on... British bands and other people
8: You must be aware that there's, that there's kind of this, this aura of Steely Dan sort of hanging over popular music at the moment there seems to be a kind of feeling of it in the air it's quite strange Is that so? Yeah I think so I mean yeah, obviously there's groups like well there's a group called Deacon Blue as I'm sure you know
7: Oh, yeah, I've heard of them.
8: Yeah, and people like, uh, I think Prefab Sprout, people often say they sound a bit like Steely Dan. Well, why is
7: that?
8: I'm not sure. I guess it's something to do with their eclecticism and their kind of, I don't know, some of the chord changes, I guess, maybe remind people or something. I think it's hard to be too Well, the records
7: were definitely, we we took a long time to make them. We we wanted to, uh, we were interested, I guess, on the model of the Beatles, probably. We wanted the records to be... Have no filler and to be real, wor- you know, really definitely wor- worth the price. So uh, we took a long time with them, and uh, maybe that was worth it in the end, you know.
8: Hmm. Mm. So did it seem? Did it seem to you that took it? a
7: long time writing this? You know, we made we we took a long time writing the songs and a long time putting the albums together. Uh, and you know, if, if the, it, we we never used any filler, so you no, know, mm. you know, we were really. The, uh, very
0: seriously,
5: so I
2: seen your picture. You're above it. yeah no i mean it's, it's, it's interesting it's interesting stuff I mean he talks more about Steve Dan later on in the interview. He talks about basically how he how he he met Walter Becker at Bard College, his own youth and his own background. he also talks about walter becker's drug problems, but they've started working again because. Whilst this interview is being recorded, he's recording he's recording his second solo album, Kamakiriad which was produced by Walter Becker. And then subsequently, Steely Dan did go on to make some further releases.
0: We do love Steely Dan, don't we? I mean, it's worth saying at this point. This is something we we can unite around.
1: The gold standard in rock and roll pretentiousness, Steely Dan, (laughs) that we all do love.
0: (laughs) And we even put together a book of interviews and reviews called Major Dudes. And, I mean, listening to this interview, I was struck by, I mean, I've interviewed... Fagan probably three times, twice as one-half of Steely Dan, so twice with Walter Becker. And it just reminded me that actually Walter was – was more, I don't know, more personal, more funnier. Yeah. Donald's a little bit downbeat. I think he's an awfully brilliant man. But well, Walter was actually the, the kind of wittier of the two of them. But he would, but they were a great double act. like a yeah. kind of, He was like the straight man to Walter's. Absolutely. Yeah, I,
2: um, yeah. But I think that, you know, the downbeat thing, I think there's an element of that's who he is. He's very interesting. That We'll listen to a clip about The Nightfly in a moment. But after The Nightfly, he entered a, period, a terrible period of writer's block. Simply couldn't write songs anymore. There's a big gap between the two albums. Massive
0: and, gap, yeah.
2: And he talk, talks extensively about going to therapy to yeah. sort of deal with this. So, so you know, I, I think we can safely say that there are. Donald is a man who's has issues of a variety of sorts. So, well,
0: is, I was one of a lot of people who, for kind of 10 years, were sitting here having been a, just a, a steely and obsessive. Yeah in the seventies and eighties, you know, was just, well, what the hell is Donald Fagan doing? Yeah. You know, I mean he wrote some film criticism for Premier magazine. He was involved in a Couple, couple of things. Bright Lights, Big City, and Gospel at
2: Colonus. He was one of the producers of, which was, is a yeah. really interesting stage but play. Why
0: isn't he making any music? What yeah. on earth is going on? Well, and when I finally got to interview him, I learnt about all this, yeah. this therapy he'd been in. It kind of made some sense, you know. And he does talk about his childhood, doesn't he? In this yes. interview, yeah, you know? which
2: sounds like a fairly tricky childhood in some respects. Anyway, we'll, we'll listen to this clip. He's talking about Nightfly and Adam Sweeting posits the fact that it's the it's less cynical records than the Steely Dan records in terms of its lyric, lyrical content. And I think Fagan's take on this is really interesting. Let's have a listen.
8: You had this reputation for being quite kind of cynical and ironic and so on, and the Nightfly actually seemed quite um, nostalgic and almost, almost sentimental in some ways.
2: Uh, well...
7: I was, you know, it's it's kind of to me it's it's uh, you know it's, uh, it's essentially mock sentimental. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> in a way, it's even more cynical. In a way, uh, depending on how you look at it, I think there was a kind of a feeling of uh, you know a wish to for for that kind of essential innocence mm-hmm. of uh, youth. But on the other hand, uh, it also. Uh, fun of the, the, I think, of the kind of reality that was projected by society onto the child, which uh, was a false reality in a lot of ways.
2: It's interesting stuff. At the end, he he talks about Hip hop, oddly, and Prince and other modern music. The fact that De La Soul, sorry Amy, De La Soul sampled Peg. <laughs> you know, um, it's good, interesting stuff. It's interesting stuff. It's
1: interesting to listen to him talking because he is he is quite melancholic. And but in a way, a lot of Steely Dan tracks, kind of lyrically, are melancholia wrapped in studio perfectionism. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's it is yeah. there is a kind of a dark
2: side to it, even as it sounds so perfect and yeah. polished. Yeah, that's true. Uh, also interesting, the, the first clip you played, you talked about how they took a long time over their records. At one point, Roger Nichols, who was their sort of house engineer, had a column in Mix magazine, and it start, the column would start... Stevie Dan recording day 95, we're still moving the snare drum around in millisecond increments, you know? I mean, <laughs> I think it drove Roger Nichols around a bend that was such such perfectionists, but...
0: Exactly, yeah.
1: But there were some great records that came out of it, so you kind of yeah. like, well... It was worth
2: it. <laughs> yeah, yeah and I mean, so. I think
0: we all broadly agree that The Nightfly is up there with the very best of Steely Dan.
2: Yeah, I absolutely love so, The Nightfly. Yeah, it's really. I good. mean, there
0: is a perfectionism there, but I don't have a problem with their perfectionism. And in many ways, Steely Dan were a sort of reaction to the rather phony kind of looseness of rock and roll, I think. Yeah. I mean, they, they were not interested in being rock stars at all they became these kind of studio obsessives. And I think I think their, their run of albums in the 70s, you know, culminating in, I think, the very underrated Gaucho is as good as any run of great records made by, you know, the obvious names in that decade. I do think it's right up there in terms of just intelligence, in terms of musical sophistication. Yeah. And he's such a unique singer as well, isn't he?
2: Yeah. Such,
0: such a bizarre voice.
2: Well, I mean, he's, just, he's not really a good singer at all. That's the extraordinary thing. He's got sort of nasal tones, you but know. It works. It works it? brilliantly. It works absolutely yeah.
0: brilliantly. Yeah, yeah. It's like a, it's Definitely. a character singing. Because so he, there's a lot of umming and ahring in his responses to Adam Sweetie's questions. And, yeah. and it's quite surprising, given how witty he is on the page. I mean, his book, Eminent Hipsters. Which Ian Penman writes beautifully about. And I think we talked about that when Ian came in for the podcast. I mean, it's a superb book. He writes absolutely beautifully. It doesn't translate to Donald in person, but we love him. Definitely, if you haven't heard The Nightfly, get The Nightfly. Check it out. This is a masterpiece. (laughs) And so I guess that takes us into the last segment of this of this 100th <laughs> episode. And Mark, you're going to tell us a little bit about some pieces that have found their way into the library.
2: Yes. Starting off again, it's a regular feature of this particular bit of the roundup, but it's Philip Elwood's Live Reviews for the San Francisco Examiner. This one from May 66. It's of Andy Warhol's Exploding Plastic Inevitable, playing the Fillmore Auditorium with Velvet Underground, Nico, and the Mothers of Invention. He says, Andy Warhol's exploding Plastic Inevitable, this weekend's feature at the Fillmore Auditorium, was hardly a revolutionary experience for San Franciscans, long used to rock dances, visuals, black and strobe lights, and other gimmicks that are happening. But some aspects of the EPI were innovative and fascinating. There was a fierce urgency about the production, homosexual and heterosexual. Warhol's actor dancers, including Nico, the pop girl of 66, perform with little distinction, jerking and posing in the spotlight. The film content includes prolonged male kiss sequences, masochism and love play in
0: underclothes.
2: That's so there,
0: there we go. Yeah, I mean, it's worth mentioning this part because, I mean, just, you know, who even knew the Velvets and the Mothers played on the same bill? Uh, just to flag up that the ne- next week's guest on the podcast will be Marshall Crenshaw, who has been spending a number of years making a documentary about Tom Wilson, the Columbia Records yeah, producer, yeah. who then went to MGM and produced not only The Velvet Underground, but The Mothers of Invention as well. So this is a this is man who produced Bob Dylan, The Velvet Underground, and The Mothers of Invention. It's amazing. That's, that's quite yeah. a claim to fame. <laughs> yeah, it
1: really is. So tune in for that. a fascinating little segment of Warholia that you just read out. It was great. It was <laughs> yeah. cool.
2: I also, I mean, just the way he writes about it for a, for a daily newspaper in 1966, it tells you something about San Francisco, I think, actually. Yeah, he definitely. Death. It's
1: pretty switched on.
2: So moving to 69, Chris Welch interviewing Barry Gibb of the Bee Gees, who really comes over as fairly preposterous. (laughs) Uh, uh, He says, there are two concertos in the album with a 60-piece orchestra. The Seven Seas Symphony in F major has Maurice playing piano. But who wants a gold leaf in the bathroom, asked Barry, pressing a finger laden with a £600 diamond ring on the elevator button. God knows, I muttered, shaking his hand with fingers bespattered with ink from a one-shilling-and-sixpence ballpoint. So that's Welsh talking there. It's good stuff. It's good stuff. Another live review, which is Mike John and New York Times, March 70, and it's Miles Davis, at Fillmore East, which, as we previously mentioned, Miles Davis playing Supporting the Grateful Dead at the Fillmore West by Elwood. And this is the classic Bitches Brew band, you know, with Jack DeGennette, Chick career, all of those guys. He says, Hearing jazz at a rock concert is always an odd experience. With Miles Davis, the trumpeter, whose quintet is appearing this weekend at the Fillmore East, it was this way. <laughs> Moving smartly forward to 1985, Paul Sexton reviewing cameos Larry Blackmon and Record Mirror. I'm asked all the time this, this funk, that funk. And it's an expression I haven't used in so long since the middle 70s. He basically just doesn't want to be described as a funk artist anymore. Right. Chuck D, public enemy, interviewed by James Brown for The Enemy in 91. It's not a fad. As black people, we're always going to be black and we're always going to cling on to it. You have highly conservative black people over 40 who don't look at me in a positive light. That's the only thing that bothers me. England had something to do with the slave trade. They just didn't allow black people to live there, which in the light of some of the yeah. recent stuff is, is yeah. an interesting comment. And he says, we are talking about football earlier, not that I'm interested in soccer. I hate it. I have no feelings about America hosting the World Cup. I can't stand soccer. So, <laughs> so there we go. That, that's my lot.
1: Over to you. Jasper, over to you. I'll just mention a couple of things quickly. One thing is a very early Coldplay live review in Leeds, another another one especially for Paul Kelly. Hi, Paul. But it's interesting partly because it is before they were so massive and dave simpson reviews it for the guardian and at the end of the review it says eventually martin as in chris martin cuts himself some slack to cry remember this as a little secret between us when we come back next year and we're massive he's still smiling sweetly but you wouldn't want to argue and it's <laughs> it's it is interesting because they obviously they've become one of the biggest bands in the world and it's kind of a little snapshot of when they weren't and that's quite fun and apparently it's totally lacking any pretentiousness, which can't be said about later Coldplay. <laughs>
7: uh,
1: <laughs> another thing is Angus Beatty meets Lil John, crunk artist extraordinaire for The Times in uh, 2005. And this is just a funny thing because so crunk actually is a portmanteau of crazy and drunk. funnily enough, but before the interview, it's sort of like one of those presses where there are a bunch of journalists and they're all in the studio and little John goes, everybody's got to lean back and drink some. I ain't having no little bitches in here. He gurgles looking increasingly like the missing link between little Stevie Wonder and Ralph, the piano playing dog from the Muppet show. You got to get crunk before I play you any of the new record. So um, <laughs> you know he's getting all the journalists drunk on tequila, but it's just a funny article from that from that perspective, and one of our few articles on Lil John. So I was pleased to get that. He <laughs> is a character.
0: I thought Lil John was a sort of character of Robin Hood and his merry men. He was. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so that,
1: that is correct. This is L I L J O N. Slightly different. Slightly more
0: streetwise. <laughs> Are you saying Robin Hood's Merry Men weren't street? They were forest wise. <laughs> they were, yes, were forest wise, but not street wise.
2: <laughs> You're stretching this one a little far, I think. But. <laughs>
1: What was the other one I wanted to mention? Don't know. What was it? It was, oh yeah, a review, an album review. Our first got on Jungle Pussy, reviewed by <laughs> David Benham in the Metro. You're spoiling us, Jasper. I know I am today. Uh, I'm just I'm just enjoying myself. And Jungle Pussy actually is really good. So if you haven't heard her, don't be put off by the XXX rated name. She's pretty great. Jungle Pussy has charm by the bucket load. Her persona is one of calculated alterno-wildness, an introvert whose body is her armour. Visually, she goes for Afrofuturism meets cyberpunk. Gleefully eroticized, verbally a mixture of soul searching and grade A shade. She hunts exes and bitchy women for sport. <laughs> grade A so, shade. Yeah. I love that. And I think it's worth pointing out that she does you know, it's, it sounds like she focuses on sex, but it's actually more about female desire and sexual autonomy, which I think is something that is, you know, always been a part of female rappers, but has only recently become kind of more spotlighted. And I think that's important. Sure. So that's my lot for this week's episode.
0: I feel inspired to follow Jungle Pussy with (laughs) a review from 2010 by Pete Perfides of Christina Aguilera's Bionic album, which is Definitely triple X rated, and he refers to all sorts of lewd phrases in his review that I was unfamiliar with. I'm trying to find one that stuck out for me, as it were. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Bishop's answers. (laughs) um, For some reason, the word "diddle" is one I recall. I had to. Okay, yes, there's a there's a track called "Diddle My Skittle." And I'm just going to leave it there. I'm not going to say any more about it. I can't uh, think what she's talking good. about. Very rude. Even the rev- just the review is rude, let alone <laughs> the album. So there we go. There we go. Thank you, Christina. I'm not going to mention any other pieces because I think we're out of time. I think we might I be. I think we're out of time.
2: On our way out, we're going to play a clip of the wonderful Keith Oldham podcast where he talks about convincing Jimmy to set his guitar alight. It's all good stuff.
1: Right. super so it remains for us to thank you very much for being with us on this on this journey and, and i wanted actually just to thank both of you for kind of going going with this idea that i had a couple of years ago and it's been such fun so thank you thank you both oh, very much it's been a nightmare <laughs>
5: <laughs> Bye. Bye. bye, <laughs> bye.
2: Jimi Hendrix, who's my absolute, I think... He, he quite likes Jimmy, I, I quite Hendrix, yes. like Jimmy Hendrix. I quite like Jimi Hendrix. I quite like Tell our listeners about how you encouraged him to set his guitar on fire. Oh, oh.
3: the on-fire story. <laughs> well, I mean, I was backstage with them at the Pinsbury Park Astoria, and uh, we were sitting in the room, and Chas Chandler, who was the manager, said to me, Keith, you're a journalist. That's my Newcastle accent.
0: <laughs> It'll do. It's, it's not, not easy.
3: A you're a journalist. Can you come up with something where can steal all the headlines? I said, well, I don't know. Cheshire. You can't keep on smashing stuff up. People are just going to think you're imitating the who. And yeah. if you smash up a TV, they're going to think you're imitating the move. It's a pity you can't set fire to the guitar. And I don't know what made me say it. Maybe something in the back of my mind about Jerry Lewis once setting fire to his piano or yeah. something. Anyway, I knew that you couldn't set fire to a state body guitar, it just wasn't going to burn. But Chaz then said, there was a sort of pregnant silence, and then Chaz said to Tony Garland, who was his assistant, Judy, go out and be some litre fuel. <laughs> Tony went out and bought some lighter fuel, and that's what they did, of course, they spread the lighter fuel yeah, over uh-huh. the face of the guitar on stage where Jimmy sat for some minutes with a box of matches trying to get it in the light. (laughs) And And eventually it went up like a bonfire. (laughs) And he started whirling it around his head like an Olympic torch, which went down very badly with the security officer at the side of the stage. (laughs) Who then said to him afterwards, I can't understand, Jimmy, and I understand what you were doing with the guitar, but what made you whirl it around your head like that? And Jimmy said, I was trying to put it out. (laughs) (laughs)
1: That was Keith Altham in conversation with Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle in 2019, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to all our guests, contributors and listeners for joining us for 100 episodes. The hosts are Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Murris and Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com.